Hello everyone and welcome. This is your host Molly Rowan Leach and we're at the seventh conference, International Conference on Restorative Justice, hosted by the NACRJ and also being put on by an incredible team from the Restorative Justice Coalition here in Colorado. And I am the media liaison for the NACRJ. I also host and produce Restorative Justice on the Rise. And it's my honor every time we come to these conferences, which happen every two years, NACRJ.org, we get to hear many stories about people doing incredible work on the ground, in the field, cross-profession. And today, in this moment, it's my honor and pleasure to have people here with us from Restorative DC and from the uh, court system and government side of restorative justice. With us is Roman Hayford, who is the restorative justice coordinator uh, for the Office of the Attorney General in Washington, DC. We also have Seema Gajwani, who is the section chief also for the Office of the Attorney General. We have Rashid Hughes, restorative justice specialist for Restorative DC, and Tarek Masarani, who is the founder of Restorative DC. And for more about this powerful network um, that does feature cross-collaboration, cross-profession, professionals, practitioners in the field, um, please visit restorativedc.org. And for more information about the Office of the Attorney General of DC's restorative justice programs, please visit oag.dc.gov. So welcome everyone to this table conversation today here at Denver, Colorado. Really Thanks, glad to have you here and looking forward to hearing really specifically about your work and your um, inspiration about what you're seeing here at this conference. Great, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes, glad so to be I, here. I thought we would set the tone here by just letting everyone know there's, the, again, that common link of Restorative DC, um, which is uh, a program that everyone should know about that has really catapulted and catalyzed a movement in your region. Um, can one of you speak a little bit more about the history of Restorative DC? Yeah, so Tarek here and I, um, uh, one thing I like to tell is back in 2011, um, I was uh, hired by the Latin American Youth Center uh, as a restorative justice coordinator and at that time I, we had nine months worth of funding to try to implement restorative justice. Um, I was trained by the Community Conferencing Center at the time in Baltimore. I was very eager to put my, my learning into place and knocked on a lot of doors. Various schools in DC, uh, the Metropolitan Police Department, the, the, the various central offices, the education agencies. Um, and people seemed interested, but there was no follow-up whatsoever. And I left after those nine months quite disillusioned and thinking there was no hope for restorative justice in Washington, DC. <laughs> so um, I, from there I went, I went, I spent a year working uh, around a gang intervention center in Prince George's County, Maryland, and we there in, in partnership with the Community Conferencing Center, we set up a diversion program based on their conferencing model in Prince George's. Um, and came back to DC to do an international, like part of an international working peace building NGO, um, but got right back into, into the scene 
And I noticed that a lot of people in that span of time had started doing a lot more work around prison to, uh, school to prison pipeline, um, racial disparities, racial equity in, in schools. And uh, the common link in my mind uh, was restorative justice. That seemed to be the answer to many of the problems that were named. Um, and so uh, it, for me, it all began when I just decided to invite people I knew into a, into the the uh, was the American Friends Service Committee office in Washington D.C. About thirty people showed up, and uh, and we talked about the common linkage restorative justice, which some of them knew about, some of them didn't, um, were not familiar with, and that started about four or so years of meeting a core team about every month, um, putting together a platform, and. Uh, and becoming more and more visible as what was called the DC Alliance for Restorative Practices at that time. Um, and it was really at, at that point that a lot of things were shaping up uh, beyond our group. Restorative justice was becoming something known and there were particular folks in particular agencies uh, I think that wanted to, to, to implement, to explore. And they came to us because we had a name in town at that point in time. Um, and, uh, and so the first opportunities uh, arose through the office of the state superintendent for education, who um, our particular, the, the person that was interested in this wanted to pilot something. And uh, initially I sent them to the Baltimore folks. Um, and, but I told them it's gonna be really important, I think, for anything that sticks to have follow through. Like a training is, is, is one, perhaps even the, the tip of the iceberg if you're wanting to really do whole school change. Um, but they didn't do that, and it wasn't. They they basically had a, a kind of a community practice. I would meet every month. That was more like a workshop training. Nothing happened on site, and so uh, the next year, they came back and they said, "Yeah, we want to do something that has more of that on site technical assistance piece to it." And so, so at that point, um, the opportunity presented itself. Uh, I figured out how to align the funding. I had lots of colleagues, friends skilled in various places, so gathered the team. We found an organization that had been working in D.C. for almost 10 years called School Talk that had all the, the infrastructure needed and already a lot of co connections. Um, and we, we started our first pilot with, 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 with this outside funding working with five schools. Um, and that was four years ago. And one of our- 2015? 2014, mm -hmm. so five years, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, one of our schools um, of the, the first five was a very high profile school, very much under the radar of media um, uh, as being uh, the place where chaos happens. And, and that was Baloo High School, uh, Baloo Senior High School. And, uh, and I think I'll leave it there and, and let Seema maybe take it from there. Mm. Thank you, Tarek. Yeah. Sure. Welcome, Thank you, Seema. Tarek. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, it's fun to go down this memory lane and to realize these fortuitous connections because, um, you know, I feel like things happen for a reason. We met Tarek, I met Tarek uh, at that point. Um, I had started to work in 2015 for the newly elected Attorney General for Washington, D.C. And um, um, Attorney General Carl Racine ran for office on a platform of juvenile justice reform uh, because DC's Office of the Attorney General is the exclusive prosecutor of all juvenile crime. So in DC, 
our adult crime is prosecuted by a different entity. It's the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that's just because of the unique nature of D.C., but all juvenile crime is prosecuted by our office. And so Attorney General Racine was coming into an office of prosecutors who had, you know, been prosecuting for years and, you know, aggressively charging all offenses and sending kids to adult court routinely um, for, you know, its whole history. And he came in wanting to change that. And I came on board shortly after he was elected as a special counsel for juvenile justice reform. And as Tarek said, he also ran on a platform of um, stopping the school to prison pipeline. Uh, one of the first things that we did was look at the rate of young people being arrested on site at schools and um, coming to our office for prosecution. And what we found was there were a handful of schools that were kind of the worst offenders. They were the ones who um, had the most, the, the highest number of youth who were being arrested and then sent to the prosecutor's office for prosecution. And we also found that those schools uh, were sending us cases for relative, largely relatively low-level offenses. And so uh, Baloo was one of them. And I decided that I wanted to uh, spend time at Baloo to see if there was a way that we could support Baloo in building up its internal infrastructure for discipline such that they wouldn't have to call the police and have youth arrested and send them to us because we realized that they were getting, everyone was getting bad outcomes from that. We're not prosecuting those cases anymore, but the kids are being arrested on site in front of their peers at schools. And um, so it's bad all around. So I got to Baloo and I had all these ideas of things that we should do and most of them failed. <laughs> and, but as I was at Baloo, there was a new principal who had come from Oakland, Dr. Reeves, Yutunde Reeves. Mm. And she uh, had been a principal at a restorative school in Oakland for many years and she wanted to bring restorative justice into the school. So she had worked with um, Tarek and others to, to train their teachers on restorative justice. And one of the first things that um, I was able to do was there were a couple of um, restorative justice experts there, um, Ivy and Salim Hilton from Youth and Families in Crisis, which is um, an organization that's been doing restorative justice in D.C. for decades. Um, and uh, they were at the school, um, and I basically just walked in on a circle that they were holding. And it was about, there were two um, ninth grade boys. One of them had just completely like beat up the other one like bloodied you know nose bloodied eyes injuries and that had happened on a Friday and the principal had made the decision that instead of having the young man arrested they were going to try and do a restorative justice conference and on Monday they had asked both sets of families to come in for the restorative justice conference and I happened to be there on Monday because I was spending a lot of time at the school so uh, Ivy Hilton Dr. Hilton invited me to sit in on the conference and I sat down in a circle and these two families came in and they were both very, very upset and anxious and angry. And we learned later that one of the families had heard over the weekend in the community that the other family was coming ready to fight. And so this mother had brought her fiance and her aunt and her sister because she knew that she said, I, I knew I had to come to Baloo ready to brawl. And there are lots of rumors flying in the community about what had happened and what one boy had said to the other. And so these things are spilling into community. And these families came. Um, very anxious and angry. And so I sat in this conference and watched as Dr. Hilton uh, facilitated this beautiful circle which um, unearthed issues of racism and conflict and bullying and 
um, joking around in ways that were really hurtful that had been going on for a long time between these boys. We recognize that the boy who beat up the other boy in many ways was a victim himself of other children bullying him. And at the end of the conference, um, everyone hugged each other. There were tears. One family said to the other family, when we see you in the street, we're going to say, hey, because we're all family now. And um, and the boys had you know, made agreements about how they were going to talk to each other when they saw each other in the halls of the school. They had agreements about how one of the young men was going to respond when his friends asked what had happened between them. Um, at one point, the aunt of one of the boys basically had the boy practice. She basically did cognitive behavioral therapy in the circle herself. She said, when your friends come and they want you to make fun of that kid and do da-da-da, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, no, I want you to talk about how you're going to say that. So let's practice. And they practiced again and again and again. And I realized at that moment, even though I was, you know, myself probably a skeptic of restorative justice, that like there was this ability and this magic that happened with restorative justice to be able to build community and heal both sides. And having been a public defender for seven years in the District of Columbia before um, in my prior history, I knew that had that young man been arrested for this charge, he would have gone through the justice system and just been more hurt and more angry and come back and nothing would have been resolved. And so that was when I became like a believer in restorative mm. justice. And so I asked Tarek to come to my office at the prosecutor's office and train anybody who was willing to be trained. And he did kindly and generously. We got some volunteers to be trained. What year was that? That was 2015. And so that was the birth of the restorative justice program at OAG. Wow. I'm hearing a lot around um, just the the awareness that that restorative justice can go deep enough to unpack intergenerational trauma and wounding. Is is that correct? And and that what was that experience like for you? Was that a first time like aha moment for you, Seema? Or? Yeah, it definitely was. And then um, subsequent to that, when we started doing restorative justice within our office, I facilitated um, the conferences for a while before we had the resources to be able to hire people like Roman and the other facilitators. But I saw that pattern again and again and again. I saw cases where young people had 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 serious conflict, sometimes with serious injury, and the parents came into the conference, and then it turns out that they knew each other's people. And they all they had connections to each mm. other. Mm-hmm. And I had another conference where the two mothers said, this same beef that your neighborhood and my neighborhood are fighting over is the same thing that we had when we were kids. And, and we didn't even know what it was about. We didn't even know what it came from. And you don't know what it comes from. And you're endangering each other and your friends with it. And so that comes up a lot. Mm. One, another um, piece of that the links actually back to Adam Foss and his presentation yesterday um, as he sat actually in this room with Pete Lee, Senator Pete Lee, and he had a brief conversation. And Pete asked him, what, why is there so much resistance with pro, pro, uh, prosecutors and DAs? And I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in just a moment. But and maybe you can comment on it and Roman and any and everyone here because it's a big one you know is is looking at how we can um, bring down the resistance and and listen to and, and build bridges uh, I bet you have some great thoughts about that 
But right now, could you introduce to us Roman and bring him into the conversation? Sure, please? he's the perfect one to talk about <laughs> this. Um, one of the uh, first, the Roman was was our was uh, our first hire. Uh, Roman's the restorative justice coordinator, um, and he basically runs the program now. <laughs> um, but what he also is is he's our he's our victim whisperer. So our toughest cases, <laughs> our cases that are the most sensitive, where we have victims who are um, sometimes the most hurt and and most anxious, uh, are the cases we give Roman. <laughs> and also, he is the whisperer of our prosecutors because what we have found is that having restorative justice facilitators in the office working alongside prosecutors has helped break down those barriers and that resistance, mostly because they get to know people like Roman and get to trust him. So I think he's the perfect person to talk about prosecutor <laughs> resistance <laughs> now. We've been thinking about this a lot as a team. I mean, we think about it all the time. You know, when I was first hired, I was personally nervous on a number of levels of working in restorative justice in the government again working in the government again, period, but especially trying to do restorative justice just because this is a prosecutor's office. So I was scared because I'd never personally facilitated cases like this in this setting, but also because how, how is this going to work? How are we going to get, mm -hmm. you know, buy-in from, mm -hmm. from prosecutors, you know? And um, it's, it, it's, we've had, we've taken some unconventional perhaps and unexpected um, steps it, because what's what's been revealed of course is that this the experience of restorative justice um, is more than anything you can put down on paper and you can talk about it all the time but until you experience circle until you see some of these more intangible dynamics that can be healed and like this this dynamic that Seema talked about um, where parents especially can share and open up and have very reliably the parents who are on the quote the other side look we're still talking that way but on the other side of that immediately recognize that and then want to share it's like that thing in circle where you catch the empathy and then you want to share what's going on for you so you have to kind of experience that and and i'm jumping sort of to the punchline a little bit but by being situated in the prosecutor's office we ultimately decided that we have to give prosecutors this experience. So we figured out a way to sort of use use firewalls and start inviting prosecutors who were sealed off from the case itself to sit in kind of as quote observers, but there's no such thing as an as a full observer in our conferences. We we have anybody who's in there who is in the circle and can feel what's going on and participates in the community building of of the process and actually one of the most Another very reliable result that we've had is that prosecutors and other sort of stakeholders who sit in these conferences, they get it. It turns them on. And so, you know, for us, that resistance, which is there, and we can talk more about the Adam Foss question of why that resistance is sort of institutionally based, and um, it's been melted to a significant degree by being in close relationship mm. with the prosecutors in our office and inviting them to experience the process. We get more referrals of more serious cases from prosecutors who have experienced the, the conference themselves. Can you tell a quick story of maybe one example of like maybe a 180 sure. scenario? Um, yeah, so 
we had a case um, where a young man who I think was 19 had stolen, uh, who'd smashed the window of, of, of a car and stolen a tablet, I think, out of the car, okay? So he's, you know, he's charged with burglary, which I think, or went, went down to, you know, robbery. robbery, sorry, which went down to theft too or something like that. So we got the case and we invited the prosecutor to the case. Now, the victim in this case was um, actually, a, uh, he was an immigrant to this country. He, this car and this tablet were definitely like the two most valuable assets that this guy owned. You know, he didn't speak English very well. So there's this initial encounter between two people who are both kind of down and out, frankly. And the victim and the responsible young person who had stolen his tablet immediately bond over this, over, over their circumstances. And in this conference, you had the, both of them reaching sort of above and beyond. Meaning, by that I mean the victim saying, look, I get it, man. You know, I, I was hard, I've been hard up too, and I, I know what the struggle's like. Like, what, you know, let, let's talk, let's, let's workshop this right now of like, which jobs are you gonna apply to? How are you gonna get yourself back on your feet? You know, not taking a punitive attitude at all. And similarly, you had the, the guy who stole his tablet being totally remorseful, saying, what can I do to pay you back? I'm so sorry, you know, and, and the victim. So where the, where the interesting story with the prosecutor comes in is that this is a prosecutor who had acknowledged that she often um, imposed restitution as part of her plea agreements, of course, right? But in restorative justice, we, we don't, you know, we leave it up to the parties to decide what what they want. And this was a case where, you know, anyone might have expected that this guy who's, very hard up, and I think that you know would, would want compensation for his broken window, but he didn't ask for that. Even though the even though the the young person uh, offered it, he still didn't ask for it. Uh, the, the the responsible person was was trying to take responsibility in a specific way, but that wasn't what was important to the victim, and that was a real light bulb for this prosecutor who cares very deeply, genuinely. You know, prosecutors aren't evil people, right? There's a narrative I think in our community and in you know. Justice mm -hmm. reform communities. Yep. This person cares deeply, sincerely mm -hmm. about um, about victims, and she's she's a prosecutor in our office who probably spent the most time with victims. She came with me on visits to victim victims' houses to talk about their cases, and so when she saw that, wow, you know, my my practice, which is out of care and concern for victims, actually can in a way inhibit them having agency over their own. Um, their own solution to justice, their own request of what they want. Um, wow! And so from then on, she 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 no longer um, required rest, um, required restitution in her plea agreements, especially with restorative justice. So that was a real light bulb moment for her. Mm. If I can just add one thing, Roman tells the story mm -hmm. beautifully. But that prosecutor. Now, whenever she talks to victims, she has a different conversation with victims. Mm. She's told me mm -hmm. that when she talks to victims, she says to them, what does justice look like for right. you? What do you need to feel safe and whole and happy at this point? And what she said is, whenever I see a case where restitution would be normally something I would ask for, I question that because I've learned um, that I may not know what victims need. And I think that's a really important paradigm shift that, you know, the government shouldn't be making decisions um, for community and for people who've been harmed about what they need. And to cede that kind of power 
to the people who've been harmed is a really profound fundamental shift in the way our justice system works. Mm. Thank you so much. I'd, I'd love to pass the mic over to Rashid for a moment. Uh, we haven't gotten a chance to hear from you yet today and I'd really love to just hear a little bit about your role with Restorative DC and um, any comments that you might have or reflections on the conversation thus far this afternoon. Yeah, so I have the wonderful privilege of of working in schools and creating restorative cultures in schools in DC and I also have the privilege of um, working with uh, restorative conferencing cases and support circles um, that we receive from the Department of Human Services um, that comes through the Attorney General's office. So you have direct interaction with, with SEMA? Both ends, uh, yeah. Okay, and, and Roma? It, Roman? Um, it's through when there's the low-level cases that come to our office are sent to a diversion program that's housed within mm -hmm. the Department of Human Services, and they have contracted with Restorative DC mm -hmm. to do restorative justice in some of those cases. So are you saying that's pre-file or pre-adjudication? Yes. Or that, what, what is it is, termed specifically? That is, a, that is a pure diversion. Okay. Those cases have been no papered. They are not going to be prosecuted. Great. Thank you for that clarity. Yeah. That's good news. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's one thing that I really love about the work that I, I do. There's a phrase that we use at Restorative DC that says 20% responsive work, 80% proactive work. And for what that's saying is that if we can spend most of our time with being proactive on creating systems and policies and working with leaders and, and youth um, and encouraging them and teaching them different ways on how to to relate to each other and seeing each, each other's humanity before something goes down then we will have to do less of the responsive work which is this may be the support circle or different forms of um, restorative um, processes and for me that brings me um, it brings me a lot of hope and a lot of of joy because I get to work with with the principal, people on behavioral teams, and also the, the, the teachers and the students. And we figure out, okay, so how can we create a way of relating to each other um, that fosters um, an awareness of how connected we are and, and also fosters this understanding that says it's important for me to understand that my actions, my words, and how I interact with other human beings in my environment, um, it's important for me to know that my actions and my interactions uh, have a, a deep impact uh, on others. And also, um, this happens, you know, before any harm has taken place. So it's, it's not, oftentimes when I hear restorative justice talked about it's only talked about from the perspective of after somebody's hurt or after somebody breaks into somebody's house or after somebody, mm -hmm. you know, beats up somebody. And, all, and that's, you know, we have processes to support individuals in those situations. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of work that can, can, can be done um, just on a day-to-day -day basis on, on how to have empathy for another human being, um, how to communicate to other human beings. 
how to be intentional about creating spaces for those who who usually aren't heard or don't have an opportunity to be heard for them to actually have an opportunity for them to tap into their their sense of um, their sense of, of of wholeness and also their sense of uh, uh, of strength um, amongst other people who may have uh, who may be in uh, positions of authority that might usually say no this is the person who talks these are the people who speak and follow the rules so I love my job mm-hmm. I love being able to do that does it start with like a listening process with administrators and teachers or um, can you share a little bit more specifically about how you work in um, you know co-owning how it's going to look in a if you're going into a new school or even in motion with one for for some time what are the are there first of all are there policies or is there some form of like guidelines shared values what does it look like for you and and your collaborators as you work First with, with and t- how many schools are you working with so right now restorative dc right now so going into the upcoming school year i think it's about 60 schools that is a right. lot of schools yeah. Yeah, yeah yep yeah wow so maybe if i can give a, a little bit of the the macro and then you can sink into the micro on this so Mm -hmm. uh thank you to reel back to that idea of the training is not enough so Mm -hmm. so what we did four years ago i guess five years ago was to say all right we're going to put uh someone as a catalyst in each school or a team and they're going to work with the school's own team and their own implementation uh or their own uh school coordinator and they're going to they're going to come up with a plan together um, for implementing restorative that's going to involve uh, circling up the adults in the building um, working with youth leadership um, doing trainings coaching mentoring teams team building relationship building some of that discipline change like it's and it's a like four to six year process where we're under no illusion that it can happen quickly um, so that's 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 what started in five five years in our original uh, five schools in our original year, and has now grown to sixty, although of varying intensity. So the majority of the schools are not getting uh, like the ten hours a, a week of on-site technical assistance. Um, they're getting much something much lighter than that. But it's all steered towards a whole school change um, with the support and with the idea that. It, we're we're not there to provide these services. We're there to make sure that they can provide them themselves, and that and that we can walk away. And our hope is that they will continue then sustainably as a school, uh, as the, in that whole school ecology to maintain itself or sustain itself. Wonderful, thank you. On the micro level of things, Rashi. Yeah. So it's for me. It's all about building relationships. So one of the first things that I do when I walk into a school, as soon as I go into the office, I see how long it takes for somebody to greet me. So that tells me a lot right there, right? Because I know if you don't, if it takes you five minutes to greet me, I know if a student is coming to school um, and the night before a lot has been going on and you know he, his behavior, his or her behavior, or their behavior might be a certain way, I, I, I'm, I'm sure that you'll probably miss out on the fact that it's a possibility that something happened at home, you know? 
So I, I look at that and then I, I kind of observe the, the, the relationship between the, the staff or the administrators and the students. So I see, do, do the administrators know the students' names? You know, can't, when, when students are walk, changing classes, do the teachers actually know the students' names? Tells me a mm -hmm. lot right there. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and, then, and then once that happens, you know, I, I kind of begin to just, to see how, what the school is already doing that is restorative. Mm -hmm. like and 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 see how we can continue to encourage them to widen their their field of of um, restorative of restorative work so that might that might come through working with the behavioral team or creating more student-led um, st student-led groups or get more student involvement with working with administration um, so I really enjoy focusing more on the proactive side because the proactive can often prevent the responsive work from having to mm -hmm. to, to happen as much mm -hmm. yeah. how and how are you seeing what might be called tier one restorative justice processes supporting that how does that play out in schools can you can you say a little more um, they're, they're the non-conflict related. They're the trust and community building circles and processes. Yeah, I mean, it's, What are it's, you observing? It's, it's, are, are, I mean, I've heard many educators feel like this, this just feels like it's another thing. You know, it's, um, we, they've had so many different things come their way about mo modules or, or practices or systems. And what makes restorative justice different in the classroom, um, even when there isn't conflict? And why is it worth teachers' time to consider, you know, a short check-in hmm. with their students in the morning, for example? Because if 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 a student if a student doesn't feel that the teacher trusts trusts them or understands them, then it's 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 highly likely that the student will engage or interact with that teacher from a place of defensiveness. Because if, if I come into a classroom and the person who's supposed to care about me doesn't even ask how my day is or morning has been going so far, why, why would I care to craps about, you know, 2x times 4b and what that equals? So opportunities for, for students to actually for, for teachers and staff to see the importance of actually recognizing the, the sacredness of student-to-teacher to relationship, if that can happen, then what the restorative process looks like, it, it evolves naturally. So when I come to a classroom, I'm not thinking circles. I'm, th I'm thinking relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking connection. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking how to get people's voices mm -hmm. heard, mm -hmm. how to get stories told. So if that comes in the circle, great. If it comes to, to inviting students to have lunch with you and share some of your stories or, you know, different ways. So I don't really have a formula for mm -hmm. this, how it works, because it's different for every school. Because mm -hmm. different schools, um, it's context oriented, right? And I'm, I'm hearing from what you're sharing and also from what Roman and Seema have shared 
that there's a, a piece to any form of restorative justice, whether it's a circle or not, um, and maybe even especially in a, a post-conflict process, that the kicker is that there's an empathy piece, uh, a common ground piece that can come up and, and often does. Is that, am I hearing you all correctly? That, that's a biggie, right? Um, that, 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 that this space is unique in that. Um, uh, whereas the, during a traditional track, um, our stories and our commonalities cannot emerge. Yeah, I'll, I think that that is such a core part of what we see when we do restorative justice conferencing um, is the building of relationships through empathy and vulnerability. In fact, in the work that we've done in our offices, um, we start restorative justice with uh, a community building phase. So when we do a restorative justice conference, we, um, we think really hard uh, in our preparation for every restorative justice conference, which the whole team does together. We moot every conference before it happens. Um, but we think really hard about what needs to happen so that the folks in the conference, the participants, are able to um, show vulnerability and see vulnerability in others so that they can connect on a human level before they have to do the hard work of talking about the crime that was committed and how everyone was impacted by that crime and then what needs to happen to move forward, which are of course the core parts of a restorative justice conference. But we spend as much time in preparation, I would say, talking about the community building questions and process. And in some ways, maybe you can speak to this Roman, but the amount of time that goes into the, the community mm -hmm. building phase of the total amount of time of the conference is quite significant, sometimes half. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess what's coming up for me is that when we talk about why would a victim want to do restorative justice, say to a prosecutor, you know, oftentimes I think restorative justice practitioners, certainly I was trained in the uh, conventional answers because this is a better way to get what you really want, right? We touched on this earlier. What's your definition of justice? Mm -hmm. Notice how there's no empathy needed there. Hmm. And so when we started, um, you know, a lot of our trainings didn't necessarily include a whole lot of community building because, at least in my experience, empathy is a sort of amorph amorphous, it, it, even though it is so core, I don't think there's, there's also a, a balance struck between imposing that on people. You don't want to force people to be best friends. So there's a, there's a, there's mm -hmm. nuance to this mm -hmm. thing. Um, and what Seema's saying is so right. And, and again, in our experience, like b building room for what is the um, community conference equivalent to what Rashid was talking about in schools, which is building room for people to be seen and heard, share their stories together, just is important, you know, it, it, and if, you know, we call that empathy, you know, connective, t it's the connective tissue that allows for more effective responsibility being taken by the harmer, more effective listening by the supporters, more effective agreements, because people will remember. It's amazing. You think as a facilitator, you're kind of keeping track of everything. Energetically, I think that's true, but 
you, you might miss something and then a supporter will come out of the blue and say, well, you said you needed this, you know, I've got this thing. And it's like, wow, like people are really keeping track of what happened from what comes out of the community building round. So, so while, while I still certainly agree with the conventional wisdom that, you know, restorative justice isn't necessarily about um, forgiveness or even reconciliation, this empathy building, this humanizing um, is a really important part of the process going mm -hmm. well. For forgiveness is often cultivated out of that space. Sure. But it's not the, the end uh, goal. Right. Seema um, mentioned that you're a bit of a whisperer for victims and for prosecutors. Did you want to say a little bit more about like what you think is important as we, I know many people on the ground are wanting to build better bridges um, with the offices that sometimes, you know, feel a little bit difficult to approach. And I loved how you noted that there's a, perhaps a bit of stigma around right. prosecutors and DAs and, and so forth. Would you be willing to speak to that a bit? Which piece with, with victims, start with, with DA, Start with, with what you think the essential needs are. Yeah, because you are so good at working with impacted parties, with victims and, and with prosecutors. What, what are the, their essential needs that you seem to be meeting really well? Well, I think it's getting into <laughs> essential needs. Well, you know, if I'm, if I'm sitting down with, whether I'm sitting down with a victim or with a prosecutor, um, you have to get into their shoes and find out what's important to them. So that's, that's the thing. And you can't be uh, so attached to an outcome. As soon as you do that, there's a hypersensitivity to that, whether it's a victim or a prosecutor, you know, um, because... Even if it's unspoken, they'll pick up on it. They'll pick up on it. Right. Right. So you have to be willing for, you have to be willing for the answer to be no. And to be consistent in how you show up anyway. Mm -hmm. And listen for, li listen, listen, listen for what's important to them and make sure that your primary focus is doing whatever you can to let them know that you're genuinely interested in what's important to them. On that, yeah, yeah. on that point, and this is for each of you, um, whoever would wish to comment, um, many programs across the country are growing, and there's measurables that you know are required for funding, right. you know, evals, you know, caseloads per quarter, and so forth. What would you say to someone who's who is really trying to move forward with this program, expand it, capacity build, and yet um, be unattached <laughs> to, you know, another case coming in. Hmm. Any insights on that? Talk a little bit more about the question. What would we say to somebody who has to think about how to measure and communicate the value 
or how I can say one thing, uh, and that is we felt an enormous amount of pressure to take cases, to get cases mm-hmm. yeah. from mm-hmm. prosecutors. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We, when we first started off, we did not have support <coughs> from the prosecutors. And um, I knew that in order to build this program, I needed to build support from prosecutors. I needed them to send us not only more cases, but they needed to start sending us more serious cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there was an instinct to defer to them. Mm-hmm. And um, that was real. That was real. It, there was, you know, when I hired Roman and the other amazing facilitators, we talked a lot about the fact that our viability depended on their relationship with the prosecutors. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we needed to be very, very careful about meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was just a reality that we dealt with. Now we're in this curious situation where we have more cases than we can handle from the prosecutors and because prosecutors especially the leadership of the prosecutor section um, believes in restorative justice their instinct is to net widen they want to give us all of the cases they want to give us cases that they would otherwise not prosecute and so now we have to flip (laughs) our orientation to how we engage with prosecutors from one of being deferential to one of being very careful and mm-hmm. resistant, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and saying to them, we won't take cases that you won't prosecute because that's net widening, and uh, and because we have to be very careful about that conversation, and not turn off people from wanting to send us cases because we know that they um, are deeply interested in in it and they believe in restorative justice. You know, I trust these guys, Roman especially, to have those really delicate conversations with prosecutors. Yeah, I don't have an answer for because we, frankly, we haven't succeeded with every prosecutor or even every category of um, case that we've been interested in taking, right? Um, a lot of doors have closed. So mm-hmm. the only answer can be without compromising the integrity is that the work if you're doing the work with integrity, if you're facilitating with integrity, meaning, meaning um, abiding by the principles of, of, in scare quotes, true restorative justice, you know, not net widening, you know, part, consent, mm-hmm. informed consent, confidentiality, mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. important principles, um, the work either moves you or it doesn't. Um, and it it's not going to move every you know if to the extent that we're talking about prosecutors who still have discretion over cases that's the world we currently live in it it might not work with a, it's not going to work with every prosecutor but what we found is that you know in holding that line it has the the culture has changed we have moved like as everybody at this conference knows you know moving the needle is what we're talking about you mm-hmm. sometimes you see you know i think frankly, in, in just a two-year-old program and change or a three-year-old program, we've seen enormous success. I mean, we've had over 100 conferences, the vast majority of which have been successful. And 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 yet, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's about ex- it, it bringing the work deeper and deeper into 
areas where there has been no exposure so that the culture can change mm-hmm. to accept the work. And as we all know, doors may be closed, funding may be lost, and you may have to recycle and start all over again, but that's all you can do. And mm-hmm. Right? I don't know. What do you think, Rishi? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a tough question, um, Rashid. I didn't mean to steal your thunder here, but <laughs> um, you had asked me to kind of clarify a little bit more. And the reason I asked that yeah. question is because I know, in some states, Colorado included, there, you know, it's not like emphasis on caseloads per quarter, but it's really important for funding and growing programs to show that you're growing in your ability to receive and to increase your caseloads. And so that balance between, because integrity of process is so important, and yet, you know, there's small programs in Colorado and I'm sure nationwide that are facing these kinds of pressures all the time. And um, that's why I asked that question because the, the evaluative piece is so important you know how are we doing like we, we we're we're measurement human beings we need measurement we need data we need we need to know how we're doing we just need that yeah. and especially within these you know systems that we work within and so that that was that's a concern i continue to have of you know how are we doing for each other like between the systems needs for measurement and reporting and the people on the ground that are really wanting to, you know, tend the relationships, you know, maybe not let pass through um, people who may not be quite ready. You know, consent's a big one. Um, in Colorado, a level of accountability is important to, to feel there's that sense of accountability before a process really, you know, is accepted. On that note, what do you? What are your thoughts, Rashid? If you want to take this one, how do you feel about like accountability being sort of like a gateway for like a person who is has harmed? Um, is it important in schools to you know consider accountability before you go into any kind of process of any kind? What are your thoughts? I just on want that? to make sure I understand you. Is it important in schools that that students under, understand accountability? Well, if you're if you're doing a conflict circle, for example, is it a requirement that the what we call the offender um, be accountable or or admit accountability or at least show some form of accountability or remorse, or is that is there less emphasis on that? That's not a prerequisite for uh-huh. for me. Um, The prerequisite for me is for for both the people who've been who've been affected by harm and those, both those people who've been um, labeled as the people who've who've caused the harm is that going into the the circle there's a shared agreement that we are all here to make things better. Now, what happens after that? I, I make space for. Uh, that to arise spontaneously in the circle, but I, I don't have any um, any any you know expect hardcore expectations that that I place on 
um, either either um, either either sides of the of the um, of the incident. You know, it's the my my main agreement is that going in, you're agreeing to do your best to be respectful, to hear the other person's um, side of the story, understand, um, give them the space to to share what happened through their perspective, how they've been affected by it, and and also to just um, aim for being able to to make things right, to repair whatever whatever harm has has happened, and how that looks is unique to every situation. Mm -hmm. There's there isn't there isn't a, a outline of the, these are the things we usually do. Mm -hmm. well, you know, these are what people usually do mm -hmm. to repair harm. No, mm -hmm. that that arises from from the hearts of the people there, based off of their their understanding of 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 how important it is for there to be some type of reconciliation. Thank you. And if you see no remorse, or sense no remorse, or or little or any accountability. Are you surprised um, t when the process is in motion to see that actually the process itself might help to cultivate self-awareness, especially given the fact that you, the, the way that you go about this is a shared agreement about these particulars, right, that you just described. Um, do you see that accountability and willingness to you know, be responsible um, increases for people that have harmed, caused harm. I I hope I'm being I'm not yeah. maybe can, being can clear enough. Yeah, it's it's this accountability gateway that is a big topic in the restorative justice movement, really, um, and it and it's more specific to legislation. I think, and having stipulations for local programs. So it translates from the systemic piece of, um, okay, we have to have these certain provisions in place, including, you know, um, offender accountability. And so I think what I'm really wanting to hear from you is the, if, there, if you have juice around that in your respective fields, like, what are you seeing? Um, are there stipulations there? We don't have a hard stipulation for a particular um, for accountability, but we we do require some uh, some degree of responsibility, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, before we'll bring two otherwise consenting restorative mm -hmm. justice participants together. Mm -hmm. So if they're in wildly different worlds, and if the responsible youth or responsible adult, we do some adult cases as well, um, is totally unwilling to accept any or share or, or acknowledge any sort of responsibility or, or involvement, then we won't. And I agree with Rashid that that doesn't mean that there wouldn't be a valuable mm -hmm. restorative dialogue between mm -hmm. these two people, but yeah. where for, for our particular intervention, mm -hmm. we do require some form of responsibility. now. And how is that measured? How, exactly. do, you, how do you tell? Um, by talking with them and evaluating. So there's the subjective. Okay. That's the subjective yeah. piece. Is is the facilitator is the one who sort of is the 
ultimate backstop on what that means, um, right? Yeah. But there's, you know, so we have guidelines around what that means, but ultimately it's a bit of a subjective right. call. What do you do when, when your co-facilitators or your colleagues have disagreements about that piece? We discuss it as a team. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> every time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, before every conference, we have what, what we call our moot, which is where we run through our goals for the conference, our biases, um, what our fears are, so we can get those out and seek support from our teammates, um, our strategy, and the, the, the trouble points, the sticking points. And I just had a conference on Tuesday where this came up, which was that there was a discrepancy kind of around what happened and it, it, like the, 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 you know, the narratives, it's a little bit different from accountability, but it's a very related thing, meaning the two narratives, the narratives of the two main participants, the responsible youth and the victim were different, which meant that the type of accountability that the victim was gonna hear was not necessarily what he was expecting to hear. And we, we sort of talked through and that, that gets very nuanced. It's very case by case because, of course, I can't share statements. But, you know, my team is like, well, can you prepare the victim in this way and see how they react so that you can manage expectations without um, offending confidentiality mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. And oftentimes if, if, the, if, you know, the, the, the youth who've, who's caused the, caused the harm and the youth who've been impacted, if they're in two different worlds, like completely and there's an obvious unwillingness to even um to even explore uh coming to some type of agreement and repair um that's that's our responsibility as facilitators to make the call of whether or not this is this is appropriate to to go further further with um because what what can happen is that more harm will be caused to the person who's already been impacted if if there isn't some type of uh, you know um, agreement going into the, the mm -hmm. case mm -hmm. well I know that that we are getting close to wrapping up here today but I really would like to come back to you again Rashid and and just ask you what would you like people to know about your work in DC with schools and, and anything that, that you want to leave us with that you feel is really important to know as we step in and work with youth? I would, I would say that youth have the answers if we would pro provide spaces and opportunities for youth to explore the ideas and explore what's in their hearts and also to, to have the opportunity to, to let us know what they need, then I think real transformation can take place. And that will require, that will require adults to, to humble themselves to a certain degree and to, to work with the discomfort of actually saying, hey, I'm here to listen. I want to hear your story. I want to hear how you can help create a more restorative and safe and trusting environment. So the adults trusting that the youth know what their communities and what their schools need. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rashid. Thank you. 
This Restorative DC. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, let's pass the mic over to Tarek for some closing thoughts. Uh, glad to have you back. Um, we're, we're discussing what um, you might like to make sure that we cover um, or make known about Restorative DC and your work and or um, some points about being here together with 1,800 other practitioners and professionals here at this conference and what you're sitting with. It's a lot to consider, so you yeah. could choose just a piece of it or something else as you wish. I wanted to emphasize uh, in in the growth that's happened in DC in a very short amount of time, which is which is different from um, what I've seen in other places. Uh, I think part of that has been having an a agency like the Office of Attorney General take this on and live it. Uh, from the inside, and that's really had heads turn, and I think that has really contributed to the acceleration. And there are other agency heads um, and agencies that have committed to it as well. Um, and, and it also comes with its challenges. Um, I think uh, the the community building work that happened that I described at the at the beginning around. That sort of coalition that met voluntarily uh, every month in the evenings. Uh, that that was important work in, in those days to, to bring together and to find the people with the passion to start showing up for this work. Um, I think <clears throat> um, we now have legislation that uh, restricts suspensions and other exclusionary measures in schools. Um, that has been the function of the activist community, advocacy community, the legal advocates coming together uh, that have swayed DC council members. So a lot of pieces have come together uh, and at the same time uh, I, I think it's important uh, to stay to stay really true and to, to, to the work and to the relationship building that needs to be underneath it all um, and uh, and I do I do worry that with rapid expansion um, you forget that and you rush into things um, and uh, and and I'm inspired by a conversation last night by Judge Yazi, who's here in attendance from the Diné Navajo Nation, uh, who said that uh, even your own personal learning takes time. That it's um, oftentimes white people come to him asking questions. They want the answers. They want them now. Um, and he says that where he comes from, um, he doesn't give them answers. And maybe after some time, he'll give them an answer, but it won't be a direct response to the questions. Um, because if you just give them the answers, uh, you don't really learn it. You don't really come on upon it on your own and embody it and understand it. And I think that's true for, for a, prob a program, a movement. Um, uh, 
having people really learn this through their own lived experience. Um, and whether that's a school or a particular staff in the school um, or a program, the diversion system or anywhere. Um, and that's going to take more time and, 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 and go, go slowly, much slower than sort of offering to do it for people, to answer the question for people, to offer the solution for people. Um, so that's what's in my mind right now, thinking about weighing the, this rapid growth, but also with, with the sustainability and the integrity of, of the, these ways of, of being. Thank you so much. This is a conversation long overdue, and it's so good to have you here. Likewise. Yeah. Um, we're going to do, of course, our closing comments, but one piece that I have a need to really make sure we cover is any closing thoughts on um, the measurables that we were talking about a moment ago, any st uh, numbers or statistics that you do want to share. So if you'd be willing to stick with me for a few minutes after closing comments, we can add um, some of that to this conversation. For people who are listening from all over the place that might be interested in hearing those pieces briefly. Sure. So, so let's come back though to, to you, Roman, and then to you, Seema, and just uh, check in on closing thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. My, I've been turning around I feel like this conference, I finally got a concept of um, transformational justice and its relationship with restorative justice. And what I'm inspired by in our community um, is that we've been able to I don't want to say prove, but demonstrate and experience together um, a genuinely different way forward that um, calls in a different way of relating and different possibilities for people um, coming into contact with each other and harmed and therefore coming into contact with our current system. and the echoes of that right now I, I think it's like um, these are paddle strokes on a really big canoe right and those ultimately as those echoes affect more and more people we will start to change everything around us the the structures the, the spaces the environments that's all needs to change in order for us to realize this promised land that these conferences kind of start to imagine. But in the meantime, it's cool to see the splashes of those paddles, you know, the things you see first, right? Prosecutors accepting cases and prosecutors sitting in watching what we're taught is a no-no, you know, people talking to each other, working out after serious injury. Like, so those are big deals and those, those are, those are sort of acute examples of deep-seated change. And what I'm excited about is how those paddle strokes, you know, when you make a paddle stroke on a big canoe, 
that changes the trajectory of the canoe forever, even if you don't see the canoe start to change right away. So I'm excited about those paddle strokes. If that made any sense at all. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Roman. And again, uh, Roman is the RJ coordinator uh, for the Office of the Attorney General in Washington, D.C. Uh, thank you for Same having all of us. No problem. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have, um, in this last couple of days at this conference, I've been struck by the extraordinary breadth of restorative justice that's happening and the different restorative practices. Um, I was in an intense and amazing uh, session yesterday um, where folks were talking about doing work on sexual, serious sexual harm cases um, with um, people who are imprisoned for those crimes. Uh, talking to Tarek yesterday, I feel like Tarek is on the cutting edge of thinking about surrogacy in restorative conferencing and, and role plays of support groups for people to reimagine what it would be like as a as a young person when they were harmed, um, to have the support circle that they needed, fascinating ways to grow and explore and innovate in restorative justice happening. And it's all kind of here at this conference. Um, what's interesting about our work is uh, I didn't start a restorative justice program in our office, in a prosecutor's office, because I wanted to have a pure program, a restorative justice program. I started it because I was really, really interested in how to change the culture of prosecution. And uh, as Tarek said, there are challenges to doing this work from inside government and inside a prosecutor's office, for sure. Um, on the other hand, what we have seen is enormous potential for a real paradigm shift in what it means to be a progressive prosecutor. And there's this wave of newly elected progressive prosecutors happening across the country uh, who are being elected talking about paradigm shift and culture change and reversing mass incarceration. And it's not clear what those solutions are. And I believe we've happened upon one. And it's something that I think can hold an enormous amount of power not only for the individuals who have been harmed and who have caused harm to find reconciliation case by case, which we see that kind of power uh, all the time. And it's a, such a privilege and an honor to be able to do this work, to see that day in and day out. And for Roman and the other facilitators to build the relationships with all of the parties that are transformational for them. Uh, for the facilitator and for the individuals, I would say. Um, but also what we're seeing is is a way to really transform, I think, the justice system and to, to perhaps offer a way to transform the adversarial system. Um, certainly in cases where the person who has caused the harm is willing to take responsibility to some extent. Uh, and since the vast, vast majority of cases through the criminal justice system today are dealt with through guilty pleas and not through trial, there's great opportunity 
in that space to have restorative justice perhaps be the way that justice is handled and um, the adversarial system is the default that the adversarial system is the exception where mm -hmm. cases need to go to trial mm. and I think that we're on the very beginning of exploring what that could look like and it's only been possible because of restorative justice mm. Mm -hmm. So maybe someday we'll have punitive diversions <laughs> oh, God. for limited cases. <laughs> so before we sign off, uh, quick popcorns um, of any numbers that you'd like to share. Um, evidence, again, coming back to the fact that a lot of, of programs are required to you know, survey their stakeholders or report to states. Um, Share some, some thoughts on that if you have them. Um, I like to start with like the development just like on the ground and like in our office what it feels like. So, you know, like Seema said, it started with just you getting trained by Tarek. And so we had a one <laughs> uh, restorative justice facilitator. And then um, now we have five, six including you. Yeah, and we're getting a new we're getting a new FTE in the fall. The city council just gave us another yeah. facilitator position. So we're growing. So we're growing now. I mean, this is a, now a huge number of staff in who handle cases sort of on equal par with the prosecutors. We have almost as many restorative justice facilitators now as juvenile prosecutors mm -hmm. in the office. Mm -hmm. So that's where I like to start in mm -hmm. terms of numbers. It's not the numbers you would necessarily start with, but if people who are listening can imagine that, you know, this is a prosecutor's office now who has just as many restorative justice facilitators, most of whom are not lawyers, most of whom are from the communities where these cases are coming from and have lived there most or all of their lives. So that is like what I think the most important thing, but that is indicative of caseloads. And why have caseloads increased? Because we started off again with very safe cases, you know, not necessarily the most extreme violent cases, right Seema? I mean, mm -hmm. and, and we've grown to now, uh, we, Prosecutors are referring us felonies, misdemeanors, pretty much everything up to <coughs> gun cases and homicide uh, and, and really serious sex cases. We're now referring a wide um, breadth of, uh, of cases to restorative justice. So again, that's all just within the past two years of expanding the type and um, number of cases that we're receiving. So we're, we're receiving um, probably, this is an estimate, but probably about five referrals a week I'd say um, to our program and um, you know we've had over 200 referrals in two years to our program and around a hundred conferences mm -hmm. and I'm pulling up our latest statistics I think an interesting um, stat that I'd love to put sure. out there is um, of the referrals from prosecutors 85% of victims agree to do restorative justice, and that's extraordinary. Yeah, that really is. Yeah. And what are you seeing as far as victim satisfaction post-process? We have, you know, our anecdotal sense is that the victim satisfaction is really high. We have lots of victims who, after they go through the process, want to be advocates for restorative justice, who've done testimonials mm -hmm. for us, who've spoken to people after the fact. Um, we do... Um, uh, have folks fill out an evaluation. We now are bringing in an outside research entity to to, to do more um, rigorous evaluation of things such as victim satisfaction, 
you know, um, recidivism rates and those kind of things. So we're hoping to have good numbers after the summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any further ones, Roman? Other, I, I think those are. Yeah. Those are, I think, some of them. Wonderful. Our, yeah. Well, I'm sorry that we have to conclude. We could probably go on for much longer. Um, I'm so grateful for each of you being here today for this roundtable of sorts, and for those of you listening and participating in whatever way you're coming in, make sure to check out the Restorative DC website, which is restorativedc.org. And of course, the Office of the Attorney General in Washington, D.C. is oag.dc.gov. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and thank you for being with us live from the ground here in Denver at the 7th NACRJ conference. Thank you.